subscribers will support us. Vroom, vroom, fast on your slog to rig aboard us. Hello and welcome to episode 2116 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing just well. How are you? I feel like I, I have like a, a good natural cadence to like 2116. Like I've got mm-hmm. it. I, I was I was uh, struggling with the yeah. 21 da da da. Yeah, now you've I feel adjusted. Like yeah, this new millennium we've reached yeah. here. It really rolled off the tongue. Yeah, 2116. So, mm. We are going to be talking some Hall of Fame today, which we haven't done in a while since we had Mm-mm. J. Jaffe on. We're going to be talking to a first-time guest. In fact, a first-time guest on any podcast. Yeah. I like to pop someone's podcast cherry. like Terrible. to be the, the first for anyone. Should Upsetting. not have put it that way, but nope. that is Awful. what came to my mind, and that is mm. what I said. So, Terrible. We are going to be talking to Jason Sardell, who is a projectionist. He is the leading projectionist for the Hall of Fame. And I guess you might say, well, why talk to someone about Hall of Fame projections after the results are announced? But I think in some ways it's actually more interesting to talk to him now that we know that his model worked fairly well again. And also talk about why it works and how it works and yeah. where he missed. And we'll go over the ballot and talk about some of the surprises there and some of the future ballots and also some of his non-baseball interests and hobbies and professional lives. So fun conversation, I think, mm-hmm. and a good kind of uh, bookend to Hall of Fame season. We talked to Jay Jaffe to kick things off and get a ballot preview. And now that the dust has settled, we'll talk to Jason about how it all went down. I don't I don't think the horse is out of the barn here at all. I think this is a good time to talk to someone about <laughs> Hall of Fame projections. <laughs> I'm just going to, just maybe I'm protesting too much, but I think, yeah, I I think, think that- this makes Perfect sense. I think um, a lot of people probably would have just rolled with it if you hadn't yeah. said anything. And now <laughs> you've, you, I, I feel like you've made it weird. Can I tell you something <laughs> funny? Mm-hmm. So yesterday I uh, had to run here and there and do some errands. And um, I stopped in at uh, one of the, the breweries in town to like have an early dinner and a beer. And I looked over my shoulder and there was Jay Jaffe's face on TV because huh. they they play MLB Network in uh, Fate Brewing. Uh, yeah. And I was like, I know that guy. And then I had to text <laughs> Jay about it. And I was like, this is still cool. You know, yeah. it's like still cool. Jay and I have worked together for a while now and I've been mm-hmm. in the biz. But it's still nice to see your friends up on TV. So there it we is. Go. And Jason Sardo was on MLB Network as well. He was They indeed. beat us to him. Yeah. Yep. Though I, I messaged him before I even saw that that was happening. This wow. is not a copycat booking, but they like beat us to him. very defensive in the I know, intro I here. Know. I, I don't know why. Gotta, no one was yeah, questioning this, this idea. Is it because I is it because I um, made fun of the, the cherry popping analogy? No, that was Remember totally Remember when there was a whole band so. called the Cherry Poppin' Daddies? <laughs> the 90s yes. were so weird. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Jason Sardell correctly projected that Adrian Beltre, Joe Maurer, and Todd Helton would make the Hall of Fame and that no one else would. And Mm -hmm. that was, in fact, what happened. So he is uh, here to take his victory lap and we'll get into all the nitty gritty of that. That will be fun. Few other things before we get to that. First of all, I have an update to the update to the free agent contracts over under draft. No new signings have been made that have changed the results, but it turns out that there was a, a data entry error 
on the Effectively Wild wiki, which oh usually gosh. is above reproach and 100% accurate. But in this case, there was one small lapse and it does actually affect things. So you know how we talked last time about the Rolls Chapman signing and also the Robert Stevenson signing. Mm-hmm. And I noted that I had taken the under on, I thought, MLB Trade Rumors projection of $22 million, which is mm-hmm. what the wiki said. And I expressed some surprise on the podcast that I had taken the under on that number because that sounded like a fairly low number that I wouldn't have taken the under on. But I accepted it because whatever it says on the wiki, I take to be truth and gospel. However, in this particular case, it was not quite right. In fact, MLB Trade Rumors prediction for Stevenson's contract was $36 million. Oh. And I took the under on that. And okay. indeed, he got 33 Yeah. So I was just barely right on okay. that. And that changes things to the point where I'm now not trailing you. I am ahead by $10 million, which okay. is still a small number. Yeah. But- I said someone had dubbed you Miracle Meg because yeah. of the, the come from behind <laughs> trajectory that you had. Well, you've not completely come from behind. It was a little too miraculous in that it was not actually supported by <laughs> what what was uh, out there in the natural world, in fact. But you're still close and you're still very much within striking distance. Just a, a slight correction to the record. So, okay. So here's the thing, Ben. I accept your correction to the record because mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's correct. That's mm-hmm. the right um, bit of accounting and we want accuracy in um, our our wiki and also our contests. Mm-hmm. But I- I'm here to say the following. I think I'm still Miracle Meg because the fact that oh, it yeah. is remotely close, remotely close after the Titanic myth that was mm-hmm. Otani and, might I add, the titanic amount of graciousness in accepting the will of the people. I, mm-hmm. I, still miraculous. Even if I lose, the fact that it is a contest is 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 galling. It's flummoxing. It's it's uh, it's miraculous. So mm-hmm. I will not take issue with the results of the decision to um, to count the entirety <laughs> of Otani's deal. And I will certainly not take issue with you um, having your contracts properly accounted. Um, yeah. But I will quibble as an editor with your mm-hmm. edit to the Miracle Meg distinction because plenty miraculous, my friend. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm still sort of pulling for you here, even though you don't have to. <laughs> I do you can feel for yourself. We look, we prioritize accuracy. And once this was brought to my attention, I don't know yeah. if I, I should even disclose the source who brought this to our attention. I, I hope Why? I'm not ratting him out here. But uh, this was reported by podcast listener Fangraph's own Leo Morgenstern. Oh, yeah. was listening and, and hearing this and, and expressed some hope that uh, you, his editor, would not be mad at you, <laughs> mad no. at him for, for uh, putting you back behind me here. In, Certainly in this. not. No, I, I don't think there will be any reprisals whatsoever. No. And in fact, I'm sure you value his honesty and his accuracy. And attention accuracy. to detail. Yeah, yes, for sure. Which you, you value in your writer's work. Yes. And uh, bringing that same spirit to his work for fan graphs, that's, that's what he's about here. Well, not to mention that, you know, Leo, I am given to understand, does some does some work for trade rumors. So, like, uh-huh. you know. Well, he would it, know. 
yeah, it makes good sense that he would be invested in his um, other outlet being fairly and accurately represented um, mm-hmm. on his other outlet, you know? That is correct, um, yeah. I would never hold that against Leo. Leo does good work. In fact, we aren't going to talk about his piece, but he wrote a piece uh, today at Fangraphs that I quite enjoyed um, about sort of the most average pitches in oh, baseball, yes. the most normal pitches in baseball. And uh, I thought it was quite good. And I know he did a, a lot of work on it. And so we're going to plug that piece right here. Yeah, I will link to that. I I read this morning down on the farm, the newsletter did a piece on the least average yes. pitches or pitchers, which is <laughs> yeah, kind of I a coincidence. <laughs> I read that and then I saw Leo's piece. And, oh, this makes a perfect pairing. The most yes. average and the least average. This is great. Yeah. So... There have been a couple of signings that do not impact our free agent contracts over under draft, but do impact Major League Baseball, which more people care about. One of which was Reese Hoskins signing with the Brewers. Good old Reese is now employed again. Who doesn't like a Reese Hoskins on their team? That's a two-year, $34 million deal. Matt Moore has returned to the Angels on a one-year, $9 million deal. Fascinating. Reese Hoskins, any thoughts on the Brewers adding a first base bat, which, you know, they've been in some need of in recent seasons? Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like this is a really um, terrific fit. I was actually kind of surprised that they were willing to um, guarantee that much. I almost wonder, he has an opt-out after the first year. I almost wonder if, you know, they are a budget-conscious organization. If they're like, you know, if you opt in, that'd be fine. But, um... (laughs) Really, the Brewers have been trying to sign Reese Hoskins for years now. Um, not the the literal, actual Reese Hoskins, but like they have been trying to, um, I think, secure a bat of his quality at that position for a while and have sort of cycled through other options that have been, you know, fine, but not like spectacular. And so I think it's a very good fit of player and team. And mm-hmm. he has like a, a Midwestern way about him. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like he will fit into the the vibe of the Brewers um, very easily. Um, so I, I really like that. I think that's a good pickup. They certainly need not only offense at that position, but just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so provided that he comes back fully himself from, from last year, I think that he's a, a really good answer to their roster needs. And like, you know, for Reese's sake, I hope that he... Um, has just like a really incredible season and has an easy opt-out decision just because like you always feel bad for a guy who gets hurt the way he did in a walk year and so Mm -hmm. close to opening day like that was such a late injury for him so um i know he was uh, quite beloved by many philly fans um Mm -hmm. and i'm sure they're sad to see him go but i think this is this is quite good i like it a lot yep so yeah. 13.5% career walk rate. It's always a walk year for Reese Hoskins. But Hi. Hey. <laughs> I don't know, man. You're on one. You're on a something. I don't know what the one is. I don't know what kind of one, but on, on one. Yeah. 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 I think it's encouraging for the Brewers because of some of their earlier offseason moves or non-moves right. after the departure of Craig Council. It then yeah. looked like... 
man, are they going to do anything here? Are they right. just going to be subtracting? They traded Mark Canna away, who had yeah. played a little bit of first base for them, though mostly outfield corners. And then there was the Woodruff non-tender, which you know right. I understood. But yeah. of course, there were the rumors about Corbin Burns. It, it seems like he is going to stay put. They hadn't made a lot of additions, and they'd made some subtractions. And so that was somewhat worrisome, right? Like, were they going to do anything? And yeah. they did this. So that is indeed something. So that's good. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Matt Moore briefly? Yeah, I suppose Matt Moore, death ball practitioner. Matt Moore throws oh, a boy. death ball. I don't know that oh, he calls boy. it that, but he fit the description according to Brian Menendez. <laughs> we got some feedback to the, the death ball discussion. Yeah. I heard from people who liked it. I heard from people who agreed with me that it's not descriptive enough either yeah. of the pitch's behavior or how one holds or throws the pitch. Mm. Most pitch types, it's it's either one or the other, if not both. Yeah. A couple people suggested that we could slightly tweak that and we could call it maybe like dead man's curve, which mm. is – a. That was a Brandon Connor suggestion, you know, like a, a twisty, possibly yeah. lethal road, like the, yeah. the 60s Jan and Dean song, Dead Man's Curve. Oh, that, I, I was thinking about a pirate. I made me think okay. of a pirate. Well, whatever works, but that I think is more descriptive. It has curve yes. in the name. It lets you know it's right. a, a curveball. On the other hand, it's a little more wordy and yeah. it might be hard to uh, abbreviate that in the various places that we abbreviate pitch type names. But yeah, I, I heard from Declan Cronin, former effectively well guest and a pitcher now in the Astro system who works at Tread and uh, wanted to make clear that this was not really something that they put a lot of thought into branding, that uh, <laughs> that was kind of a happy accident if it does turn out to be good branding. And then, you know, I heard some uh, feedback. Someone with a, a team messaged me to say, like, what are we doing here with this death ball? It's a short overhand breaking ball. Why does it need a name? You know, <laughs> which we touched on, right? Like, yeah. what? where do you draw the line or what's yeah. the threshold for this needs to have a, a separate breakout? And I think right. some people are perhaps of the opinion that this is unnecessary to to separate things out into the death ball. But I think it's an interesting discussion. Did they agree with me about sweeper creep? I They did not mention the sweeper creep, but I, I know there are certainly some people who, who share your feelings on that. Yeah. And some of them are just sliders, Ben. Some of them are just yeah, sliders. It's true. Well, Matt Moore throws one, technically, yes. I suppose. So he's back with the Angels now who had him last year and yeah. then cast him loose in their sure late did. season waiver exodus. And now they've brought him back. And man, the Angels, they just cannot buy a bullpen. They've tried. They've tried to buy various aspects of a team and it hasn't tended to work out that well for them. But the bullpen has been high on the list of things that have held them back during the Trout-Tani era. Like last year, they had the 27th best bullpen by Fangraphs were. The season before that, they were 26th. So they just, they've squandered whatever leads that they've had. You know, they've gone and gotten guys. Sometimes they've kind of given guys away like Rysel Iglesias. And sometimes, or like literally Matt Moore. Or like Matt Moore late in the season once all hope was lost. Yeah, but really, I just, I don't 
know that, I mean, now obviously they have bigger problems than a bullpen, but, uh, but even that, they, they have kind of remade their bullpen this offseason kind of quietly, not in the highest profile or, or right. sexiest sort of way, but they have more back now. They had Stevenson, mm-hmm. who we talked about earlier, and then Adam Simber, Luis Garcia, Adam Kalarik in the mix, right? So not all name brand guys, but they're yet again making an effort to address a deficiency, <laughs> but the deficiencies go deeper with them now than they have in a while. They do. And I'm glad that you have remarked upon that so that I can instead remark upon the part of this um, signing that I find the most interesting, which is, I do not know Matt Moore. We are not acquainted. We do not mm-hmm. exchange holiday cards. But I feel like I have learned that Matt Moore is less stressed about potentially moving than I am. Like, <laughs> I'm mostly interested in this reunion for the the psychological strangeness that I see mm. in it. Because if I don't think, you know, we talked a lot about the waiver stuff at the time. Um, and I think that the place I came out was that, um, you know, I wouldn't want it to be a, a common practice, but I didn't find it to be like... It wasn't upsetting. I wasn't like as worked up about it as some people were. And I I w- was kind of okay with it from the perspective of the players involved because the idea was sure to to get the Angels below the the first CBT threshold, but but it was also putting these guys potentially in a position to get picked up by contenders and then get to go do contending stuff and like mm-hmm. how exciting is that? We we love to contend, you know. And so, uh, and you know, like Matt Moore ended up in a position where the team he got claimed by didn't go to the playoffs. And so he got put on waivers again. And then the Marlins did go to the playoffs, but he was on the roster too late to be on their postseason roster. And then they got washed out of the, you know, the playoffs as it were. But um, I still, it's like so much uncertainty and, and, Mm -hmm. and being unsettled. And I think that, you know, if you're uh, a player signing with the Angels, it's like, yeah, they are trying some what i guess like they're they're trying to patch some holes even though to your point they have so they have so, they have so many holes yeah. but i think you probably have to know that part of the roster they are building is one that will be enticing to other teams come july you know what that can look like in LA's case. And he was yeah. like, yeah, I'll do that again. And I just find that I, I'm, I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not being critical. Like I, um, I don't know that it's a, a problem. I'm not positioning it as a problem, Ben, but it is just really interesting to me because as I have established on this podcast, like if you could bury me in the front yard of this house, I'd be game for that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I hate moving um, yeah. and decorating, you know, and then you have to live in a place like, in my opinion, ideally, you live in a place at least twice again as long as it took you to like fully decorate, you know, because mm-hmm. otherwise, like what what's the point of even having put the art up at all? Right. Like yeah. you put holes in the walls and then you have to patch them just a couple of months later. Like, get out of here. That's that's useless. <laughs> you know, that's right. a terrible way to live. I still don't feel like I'm fully done decorating this house. So I got to live here for like another like five years, four years. Mm-hmm. How long have I lived here? I don't even know. It's just interesting to me. And it makes me want to talk to Matt Moore when the angels mm-hmm. roll through Arizona, assuming that they do. Except that I don't know him, and so I feel weird asking him such a personal question. Um, but maybe I'll work <laughs> well, up the courage, you know. Yeah, 
baseball players, they're used to being asked personal questions by people they don't know. know. <laughs> it does kind but of go like, with the territory. Yeah, but it's like there's uh, I I wouldn't want it to feel like an accusation, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like, again, I, I don't think it's it's bad. I just think it's interesting and maybe only to me, but definitely to me. You know, it's interesting mm-hmm. to me. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's going back to familiar environs. So some part of him might be thinking, sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know if he still has a place or if he was renting or you know, at least he knows where and how to look. But then you're right. In the back of his mind, he has to be thinking like they jettisoned me before. They may well jettison me again. So he has to be prepared for that. I do just enjoy that Matt Moore's still kicking around and still a productive pitcher. It didn't right. really work out exactly like it was supposed to for Matt Moore, but Mm-mm. there he is now late in his career, presumably, although you never know, lefty reliever, maybe he has some seasons left in him, but this incarnation of Matt Moore, since right. he's been in the bullpen exclusively just yeah. the last couple of years with various teams, like yeah. he's he's been pretty darn dominant. I mean, yeah. You know, 126 and two-thirds innings, all in relief, 113 games from 2022 to 2023, 2.20 ERA. That's a 191 ERA plus with a 3.29 FIP, but still nice to see him hanging around. And I do kind of also get a kick of out of him being on the same team as Mike Trout because I will always remember that he was ranked ahead of Mike Trout on multiple prospect lists back Mm. in 2012. BP's own had Matt Moore as the number one prospect in baseball, just ahead of Bryce Harper and Mike Trout. I don't think BP was, I don't know if BP was the only one, but he was very high on on all of them. And, you know, maybe that wasn't the right call. I don't think you would see that today because pitchers have typically fallen down prospect lists. There are fewer of them on top 100s and fewer toward the top of top 100s just because of all the injuries, because they're pitching fewer innings. It's hard to justify ranking them on par with position player prospects. So that's kind of a relic of an earlier era of prospect evaluation and pitcher usage for that matter. But here they are, Moore and Trout together more than a decade later as teammates still contributing in in very different ways. Does not appear that the Angels come to Chase Field, but of course they do do their spring training here. So maybe I got to go to a spring training game and be like, hey, Matt Moore, we don't know each other, but talk to me about how it feels to move. (laughs) Yeah. And lastly, before we get to Jason, just wanted to say that if you were to graph my confidence level that the Oakland A's will at some point be the Las Vegas A's or just a Las Vegas-based franchise. Isn't Forget that the A's part. <laughs> it's it's not at a low, but oh. if you were to graph it, like it, it would be a gradual increase over mm-hmm. time. Okay. But of late, yeah. it, it is definitely decreasing. The line yes. is is curving down, right? Yeah. Every day that goes by that this just clearly is not a done deal after not the various points where we thought it was a done deal, where it was presented as a done deal. Yeah. I think we always caveated appropriately and, and said, you know, it's not over till it's over. Like, I won't fully believe it until opening day in Las Vegas, whatever year that is. But the longer this drags on and the more incompetent John Fisher seems and the less enthusiasm it seems there is for this relocation in Las Vegas, the more and more I, I 
doubt that this will actually come to pass. Like, I, I don't know what happens at this point, but if you haven't been following it, it's just kind of a comedy of errors, except it's a tragedy of errors, sort of. But if you just want to point and laugh at John Fisher being a fool, that certainly seems to be happening. Certainly a lot of Fisher fool fodder going on here because it's been months since they were supposed to release their renderings, their stadium plans. That hasn't happened. They just keep delaying. There are still significant questions about the funding. And Fisher has said that it's going to be funded mostly with equity from him and his family, but they still want to raise capital. There's still some uncertainty and conflicting reports and rumors about the actual site of where this hypothetical ballpark's going to be. There's still lots of questions about where the A's would play in the interim. Will they continue to stay where they are? Will they be in Sacramento? Which minor league park can be their temporary home? And then when Fisher went and talked to this Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce preview and there was sort of a, a viral video clip of the MC trying to pump up the crowd and be like, so are we all excited for the Las Vegas A's? Let's give it up one more time for Mary Beth and John Fisher, please. The Las Vegas A's. We like the sound of that, right, Vegas? Yeah? Yes? Are, are we alive back there, Las Vegas? How we feeling? <laughs> I know that sometimes it's tough to tell because the speakers mic'd up, not the crowd. There was a smattering of polite applause, mm -hmm. but it was very much a please clap sort of situation, right? So I just don't know which way this is going to go. But the book is far from closed, clearly, on this relocation actually coming to pass. Well, yeah, I wonder... What they thought was going to happen, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and I think we made this point at the time. It's a regional game, baseball, but mm -hmm. we know what happened in Oakland. You know, there's like a very robust ledger of that. You could fill a library with all the pieces that have been written about the A's situation there. And even if you, for whatever reason, or, you know, like maybe, maybe you don't care about the, the potential for billionaires paying for their own stadiums, right? Like maybe you, you're of the opinion that this is good for economies, actually. And we know that's not true, but like maybe you just have that, that view or you think that this is a good use of public funds. Like even if you think that that's true, the way that he spoke about the fans there and the place was pretty crummy. You know, he was pretty dismissive of them. He was pretty insensitive to uh, fans of the Oakland A's, not only as fans, but as like citizens of that city, right? As people hey, who live- It was harder on him than it was on them, right? Right. <laughs> you know, and so like- <laughs> What he claimed. You know, I know that um, Vegas is full of distractions and mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot to to pull your eye away, but like they, you know, they read newspapers in Las Vegas, <laughs> like mm -hmm. they see Twitter. And so I don't think that this guy was entering that market with like a sterling reputation. It's just not at all surprising to me that there would be real people who are uh, in the position of potentially footing the bill for a ballpark there who would have reservations. I just said, uh, like, I, what did you think was going to happen, John? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. And there's been reporting about 
donations that have been made to some local legislators there who may have uh, changed their tune. I'm not saying a correlation <laughs> equals causation in sure. this case, but, uh, you know, wheels get greased. This is often how local politics works, but there are still some serious hurdles here. And this saga is, is far from over. So yeah. just when you thought they were in, they pull them back out, I guess. So stay tuned if you thought we were done talking about the A's. I mean, it's it's got to be tough for A's fans because on the one hand, maybe they're at the stage where they're getting some, some schadenfreude out of this or, you know, enjoying the fact that this is not maybe. going smoothly from Fisher. But then again... Maybe at this point they would want a clean break. Like, let's just, yeah. if it's over, it's over, you know, like, let's let's not rekindle this. <laughs> let's have a clean break and unfollow each other on social media and not think about each other for a while and see other people, you know. It's just, it's tough if, if you're like breaking up, but then kind of getting back together again, or maybe it's not right. over, you know, is there an open relationship happening here? Like, I don't, I don't yeah. know what the state is, but I would imagine that there must be some desire for closure, even if closure means that there's no team in Oakland anymore. I, I guess, you know, most A's fans probably as jaded and bitter and sick of this whole thing as they are, I, I guess probably the best outcome would still be Fisher is forced to sell the team and maybe they stay in Oakland. So sure. I, I guess you could hold out some hope for that. But then again, does that just turn out to be false hope and you're just torturing yourself for even longer than you've already had to? It sucks, but yeah, if if there's any part of you that can at least delight in the fact that things are going wrong for John Fisher, that certainly seems to be happening. Yeah, I just, um, uh, <laughs> I don't want to enjoy it because it, it does impact a lot of people who aren't him, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I feel bad for, I feel bad for the fans. I feel bad for everyone who works for that team, both as a a player and, you know, a, a staffer in some other capacity. Like it's just a a really unfortunate situation. So I don't I don't want to revel in it. But <laughs> there is something about like very obvious and easy to predict potential consequences actually happening that is mm -hmm grimly satisfying i guess and like you know uh, watch the joke's gonna be on us because they're still gonna find a way to like finagle their way into mm -hmm. that city but i think that maybe the most meaningful potential consequence of this would be the league and the other owners taking a really hard look at their process to facilitate relocation because like we thought that this was a bad idea it seems like it's continuing to be a bad idea and yet it was a unanimously endorsed bad idea by the other mm -hmm. owners so yes you know i think that this merits a really hard look at that process and an, and a you know maybe a, a reckoning with how that's going to be conducted going forward because this seems like it has the potential to be a mess not only for their future prospects in vegas but like there's a very real question about like where are they going to play you know, mm -hmm. where are they going to play after this coming year? It's after yep. this year, right? Like they're only in the Coliseum <laughs> for one more season, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where are they <laughs> where are they gonna where are they gonna go, Ben? Where are they gonna go? They're that's a big league team. You can't just you know. I know that they've been seen like taking tours of like minor league ballparks, and it's mm -hmm. like you can't put a big league team in one of those places. Like it's nope. not there. What? Why are we doing? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's like the, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions tweet. So 
We'll see where that goes. I'm sure that there will be some more twists and turns along the way before this thing reaches whatever its destination may turn out to be. Last thing, meant to mention this while we were doing follow-ups on Death Ball and Over Under Draft. Adam, Patreon supporter, wrote in to say, related to the discussion of different numbers of players on the field and bringing the best bats up in key situations, I think that you should be able to skip a player's spot in the lineup to get to a Mm. better hitter, but the skipped player is removed from the game and the team now has one less fielder. Imagine the drama of taking the lead in the top of the ninth by skipping a few guys to get to your best hitters and now you bring in your closer with only five fielders behind him. I was sort of lamenting the fact that there's no close equivalent to pulling the goalie in baseball. This is kind of similar. So if, if you wanted to get a better hitter up, you could skip a worse hitter or some intervening hitters, but then you would have to sacrifice those fielders as well in the next half inning. What do you think of that move? I think that would be super fun. They'll never so do too. it, no. but it would be great fun. And I like that it's for a positive reason. So like I have written in the past about how baseball should have a penalty box basically. Yeah. And, but this is like a, a more productive spin on that notion. Cause you're not removing a player for some indiscretion that he's committed, but because you're trying to press an offensive advantage. And I, I, I think that that would be great fun. Like the strategy yeah. around that would be really cool to see play out. I, I again, don't, think it would ever happen and i do <laughs> as always worry in these moments about like the the balance the proper balance between the offensive and defensive sides of the ball as it were mm-hmm. um yeah. but it, i think it would be a lot of fun i've been watching a lot of hockey then yeah you know? hockey's great yeah. i think something changed with the uh the coyotes distribution deal uh oh. they're just on the cw i just get, they're just on tv all the time i don't they i get them on my hulu now i don't have uh-huh. to monkey with it i think this is badly fallout potentially i don't know but uh i just get to watch the coyotes and um nice. yeah i i think i maybe like them more than the kraken sorry mm-hmm. anyway I, been I, watching I, a lot I'm of sorry. hockey i almost understand it yeah, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Playoff hockey specifically. I don't know that there's better yeah. sports than that. But yeah. yeah, I like this idea of Adams. I, I think his specific scenario here with uh, skipping a few guys to get to your best hitters and then having five fielders behind your pitcher. Yeah. I don't know that that would ever make sense. I no. think now maybe if you're going from, say, your number nine hitter to your leadoff guy, you know, skip the number nine hitter and sacrifice a fielder. Maybe that could make sense. But if you're skipping multiple hitters, I don't think the difference between one hitter and another is going to be big enough to justify the defensive ding that that you're going to get from removing a few fielders from the field. But I, I could see some edge cases and it would be rare, but it would be incredibly cool when it happened. And imagine if it worked and that guy got the big hit, got your, your go ahead hit and then the suspense of, okay, can we hold on to this lead now with a compromised defense and then figuring out how to align your fielders? Like that would be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be. Interesting idea, Adam. All right, let's take a quick break, and we will be back with Jason Sardell to talk about Hall of Fame projections and Hall of Fame results. Cooperstown, New York. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Um, answer it. No, I'm going to leave it. Go to the answer, answer it. <laughs> 
<laughs> Hello. Hello, may I speak with Adrian Beltre, please? Yes, sir, this is him. Adrian, this is Jack O'Connell, the baseball, calling you from the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Your new second home, the baseball writers have elected you to the Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Oh, it's official. Can I speak with Joe Mauer, please? This is. Hi, Joe, this is uh, Jack O'Connell with the baseball writers have elected you to the Hall of Fame. Congratulations, <laughs> my friend. Wow, Jack, that's unbelievable. I don't even know what to say. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, if you were waiting with bated breath for the Hall of Fame voting results on Tuesday evening, you may have been spoiled or at least gotten advance notice, a little bit of a sneak peek if you were paying attention to our guest, Jason Sardell, and his excellent Hall of Fame projections. He has become the acknowledged leader in the field of Cooperstown projections, and he nailed it once again. At least he got the headliners right. Beltre, Maurer, Helton, three for three. They went three for three. You went three for three. Jason, congrats on the success yet again, and welcome to Effectively Wild. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So it used to be that there were several people who would publish projections for the Hall of Fame. And it seems to me that you've basically put everyone else out of business. <laughs> yeah, that, it does that, seem that way. You, you just beat the field to such an extent that everyone just kind of conceded that you had been the best at this and dropped out. So <laughs> I, I guess it, you know, it'd be like if Zips or Steamer or Pakoda just trounced the entire field to such an extent that everyone else just folded and said, okay, I guess we'll stick with those projections now. So how do you feel about being the only game in town at this point? Um, it's convenient. I mean, <laughs> it's always nice not to, if I miss anyone, um, that I could say like, oh, uh, anyone would have missed them, but. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us how your probabilistic model works and feel free to get as deep in the weeds as you want. This is effectively wild. Yeah. So it actually, that's not a super straightforward question because the, the answer is it changes every year. And it really depends on the the particulars of the election, and not only that, but but who I'm who I'm projecting at the time. So when I started it, it's actually been nine years, and I had to look. I couldn't believe it when I looked wow. it up the other day, mid 2010s. I first posted join Twitter to, to post them and, and to communicate with Ryan uh, Thibodeau of the the tracker team um, in 2016. So that was around right about the time when Mike Piazza and, and, and Jeff Bagwell were on the ballot. And just Craig Biggio had just gotten off. And after a few years of frustration of, of tracking the ballot results as they came in, uh, starting with Baseball Think Factory, had a rudimentary version of the tracker before Ryan took it over, and just getting frustrated at seeing, hey, these, these people are above early on, and then, yeah. then they inevitably dropped, and then I would get annoyed because the guys I thought were first ballot Hall of Famers once again missed. So I got tired of getting my hopes up and and built a model to try to to to, to unskew the projections just for my own sake. It was something I wanted to do. I never planned to release it to the public, and then mm -hmm. just on a lark posted it to, to Twitter that first year and uh, essentially nailed it. And the way it works is that there's this idea that there's there's two things going on in the tracker that uh, you have to adjust for when you want to know where people are going to finish. One is that. People can be up really early in the ballots just because the players, the the voters who voted them the year before, are the ones who 
who've submitted their ballots, basically, that have mm-hmm. revealed their ballots. So the really important thing to look for is the flip rate. It's not the raw totals. And how many, how many voters' minds have been changed since the previous year? It seems relatively straightforward, but that was that was really the key innovation of my model versus the other models that were out there at the time, mm-hmm. which were just straightforward modeling, public to private drop off from the year before. And the advantage of that, of course, is that you can do it as the season goes on. You don't need to to model a, a public private drop off as of the reveal time, for example. Mm-hmm. You could do it with a hundred ballots. You could do it with two hundred ballots just by knowing what other ballots do you expect to come out there. And the other idea is that we we knew that the late revealing ballots or the people who just don't reveal at all, they're not like the voters who who reveal early. And it makes yeah. sense. The vote, the voters who reveal early are on social media. A lot of them do it on Twitter. Some, uh, many of them are active, at least um, reporters. So they they write articles um, and publish them in the paper. So these are people who are actively covering the game now. Um, as we move on and on, a, a good chunk of them are stats friendly. They cite uh, war. They cite Jay Jaffe's jaws when they when they write their ballot columns. Whereas the voters who are not on the uh, not involved in the tracker, some of them, some of them are people who just have a. I mean, they're they're stats friendly voters. They just right. don't want to reveal early because they don't want to spoil the fun. Yeah, um, it's hard to paint with too broad a brush, right? Louis Paulus yeah. has written a lot about this, and I'll link to his latest breakdown of the secret ballots, the private ballots versus the public ballots, but it's not always breaking down the way you would think, right? Like there are a lot of candidates where it's sort of an old school versus new school thing, but then there are others where it's been a bit more confounding, which probably makes it a little harder for you to (laughs) anticipate exactly what the differential will be there. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is I have the voter pool from the year before, so I know how these voters have voted and I can say that. There are some voters who frequently vote for 10 candidates, even on a weak ballot like last year. And I know that they're in there. And I can take the the voters who revealed so far, I call these people like large hall uh, voters, and take the flip rate projections for the, the large hall voters that have revealed and then project those onto the ones that I know are, are large hall voters remaining. And the difference is that, let's say large hall voters, this is just I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but let's say large hall voters are 40% of the early reveal ones, but only 20% of the late reveal ones. It's it's putting a weight on, it's, it's basically a weighted to flip rate model at that point. To that end, like as you're relying on past behavior among the electorate to um, help you gauge what not only those individual voters might do, but voters like them might do in the future, how has the shrinking of the electorate sort of impacted your model? In some ways, it's become easier, I think, <laughs> just because, well, I don't know, actually, because it's been more challenging the last two years. And I think that might be a groupthink thing. We're, yeah. we're, we're getting more of a bias that the people who are who are revealing earlier, all they're all involved in the conversation online, or a lot of them are. And even writers who aren't are talking to writers who are, whereas the ones who might not be revealing. They, I mean, some of them are retired. Some of them are just, whether it's because they're old, uh, they, they retired by by choice or retired by not choice and had to take a job in a different field because uh, the field is so terrible right now. So they might be disconnected from the game and they don't have those conversations. So they might not be aware of, of people, say, for example, pressing Scott Rowland's case last year. 
so I think there has been more of a, it's harder to tease apart the early voters from the late voters, or, or there's more of a dichotomy there, I, I guess is the best yeah. way to put it. Yeah, it's a strange exercise because you're projecting something where you have half the answer key, essentially, right? Like <laughs> right. If, if Ryan Thibodeau and, and his team didn't do any of the tracking that they do, or if no one announced their ballots before the results came out, then you'd have nothing to go on, I guess, beyond previous year's results. As it is, you have quite a bit of data that you're basing things on, so it's it's almost like you know, if if Zips uh, knew what some player seasons were going to be with certainty, but they didn't know for others. I mean, it's it's different from sort of a statistical projection of a player season, let's say. But on the other hand, the data that you have is skewed in some ways and may be misleading. It might be worse to have that than to have nothing if you weren't accounting for these differences between the public private ballots. So it's a it's a strange sort of exercise. It's different from the kinds of projections we typically talk about. Yeah, it's like, I mean, like you say, it's 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 hard to be wildly wrong when you have half the ballots in. <laughs> you, shouldn't, <laughs> right. you shouldn't get anything too wrong. I mean, but um, that's why I, I almost think it's silly that we, we focus on what the projections are an hour before the reveal. I mean, who, who really cares at that point? I mean, that's mm. just sort of an, an exercise and, I don't know, bragging or, or yeah. tr- trying to get um, some credit there. But I, I, I find it much more interesting to be able to project things that sort of like the end of December, uh, when you might have only 100 ballots in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still have three weeks to go. They, they seem to keep pushing back the results day year after every year. It used to be the right after December, but now it's the third week of January. I think that's much more interesting to know at that point. It's like, okay, now we, we get a better sense of where the where things are headed. I used to reveal earlier on but I almost don't like that because then you get a, a reinforcing bias where mm. my projections could then sway voters right. in influence. Oh, yeah. And I don't want to do that at all. I don't want someone to say, oh, well, Joe Maurer looks to be in good shape. I have 11 candidates I want to vote for, so maybe I'll leave Joe Maurer off my ballot. <laughs> and then too many people do that, and then he winds <laughs> right. up uh, falling off. That would be the the absolute worst thing, so... Yeah, I I wanted to ask you about that because there is this concept in like, you know, political science literature about being a strategic voter. And I wonder if you if you see I, I know that there are people who when they're doing their ballot explainers will explicitly say, you know, I'm limited to 10 slots, and so I am shifting support from this guy who is a shoe-in or who I assume is going to be at least safe enough to make it to the next ballot, even if he's not going to necessarily be inducted off of this ballot, so that I can support someone whose candidacy is on shakier ground. Do you, when you're looking at all of these, do you think that, do you think we're good strategic voters in the BBWAA? Because I always wonder how accurate people's sense really is of where a given candidate's candidacy sits. I mean, well, I can only speak for the the pre-reveal voters, but I think most people are good. I do think there is a value to strategic voting if you're a, a large hall voter and you wanted to save someone like David Wright. Just uh, Jason Stark wrote a great a great column about how he doesn't necessarily believe David Wright's a Hall of Famer, but he doesn't know he's not, so he wants to make sure that that he sticks around other years. And I think that that's a, a valuable way to look at it for voters. And I think most people choose the right people to leave off. There were a few people this year who who voted for 10 and left off Todd Helton, 
at least one 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 voter who did that. And I think yeah. with them, it was more of a straightforward. I'm voting my top ten. I don't I don't care whether or not they're they're close or not. And that vote could have, in the end, mattered. I mean, uh, Billy Wagner lost some votes, and I think if if you everyone who dropped Billy Wagner had not dropped him, he would have made the Hall of Fame this year, which is really really heartbreaking for him i think yeah mm-hmm. um and his fans for sure some of those were might have been poor strategies some of them were just people changing their minds uh, people going realizing that hey i i feel like someone convinced me last year and now i don't i don't agree some of them might not have even remembered they voted for him i don't it's hard to speak for for every voter yeah but i mean i think it makes sense if i had 12 people who I wanted to vote for, I'd probably leave off Manny Ramirez and, and A-Rod. They're not going anywhere. It's kind of a wasted vote. So so why why do that? But luckily, it's not the case where everyone does that because that that would get that would get the, a problem if everyone dropped, say, Carlos Beltran to make room for right. everyone else and then he wound up at 5%. Yeah, just to give credit to some other people who still have their hat in the ring here. I know Nathaniel Rakich at 538, who's been on the show before, and he's tracked the projections historically. And there were some other people put numbers out there. Adam Dore did a naive flip rate model. He's one of Ryan Thibodeau's collaborators, which I guess doesn't project first-timers, and he did fairly well, too. But yours, I guess, is the only remaining full projection model, right? So we can give you that distinction, at least, but I will link to Nathaniel's tweet. So are you inherently a small hall or large hall guy? And do you find now that you are still able to root for the players you think deserve to be in or don't deserve to be in? Or do you find yourself now rooting for your predictions to be correct as well? <laughs> so no, I, de- I definitely have, have favorites and people I root for. And my, my stance on the hall in general has evolved. I think 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I was not necessarily small, small hall, but the, the ones you know when you saw them play and, and you didn't have to think about it. And, and it was easy at the time, I think, in the, the coming up with a hypothetical ballot in the mid-2010s, because you're limited to 10 votes, people like Scott Rowland weren't cracking my top 10. So I didn't really have to think about them at that point. Um, and it was only once I started to have room on my ballot, I'm like, hey, Scott Rowland, he's he's a definite Hall of Famer in my mind, if you look at the stati- statistical case. Or someone like Larry Walker, he came on. I think I, I would have had him on my hypothetical ballot my first year, but then I dropped him and it would have been a, a while f- for me to put him on. But your, your question about who do I root for, I mean, last <laughs> year I had projected Scott Rowland to finish just short and then he made it. And mm-hmm. I was like, it's like... I'm really happy Scott Rowland made it, but really annoyed that I got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like you had Billy Wagner at a median outcome of 74% with a 27% chance to get over 75%. He ended up at 73.8%. So you pretty much nailed it. But if he had gotten five more votes, then he would have been over the threshold. He would have been in. And again, probabilistic model. I mean, it goes back to the old Nate Silver conversations about the elections, right? Just because the most likely thing didn't happen doesn't necessarily mean that the projection was wrong. It is a probabilistic forecast, which accounts for some possibility that the less likely thing will occur, right? So it doesn't invalidate your model if Billy Wagner had actually gotten in and maybe as a larger hall guy now, you'd be happy for Billy Wagner that he got in, but 
then also maybe a bit disappointed that you hadn't projected him to be over the threshold. Yeah, Billy Wagner. I mean, I was I was rooting for him, and I it was close enough where, like you said, I mean, just the he was well within the confidence interval to get in at twenty five percent of the my model simulations. I, mean, I would have cons- I could basically consider that a uh, almost a coin flip at that point. I mean, it's it's one of those where you just can't predict. It's like mm-hmm. if a given hitter comes up to the to the plate, you 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 would bet on them to get an out, but. I mean, you, you wouldn't bet too much to, for them to make an out. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the most likely outcome, but uh, right. the the alternative outcomes aren't that surprising. I actually, I was joking with with some people, some of the tracker guys, that like one of the best out. It was perfect when when Todd Helton and, and Billy Wagner were both like projecting at seventy five percent around. I was like, well, this is I can't be wrong at this point. <laughs> uh, if I could just just root for them to get in, but then Todd Helton in the end. Uh, he he really pulled ahead in the last couple of days. He he got he didn't need a lot of flips. So once we, the problem with him was that there just wasn't enough data points early on. Mm-hmm. So many people had voted for him the year before that he didn't have a lot of um, flip opportunities. And then some voters came in in the, the last few days who had not voted for him the year before, and then they they had added him this year. So I was I was confident he was getting in at the end. Billy Wagner, like you said, uh, I, I like to think of it as as are these candidates on pace to get elected yeah and it doesn't mean that they're I mean, like billy wagner was yes i frame it as he's fallen behind and he needs he needs to make up ground in the remaining voters and unfortunately he didn't do that um he basically the post reveal voters were the ones that uh the ballots that we've yet to see um they basically followed the same similar patterns at least in under the assumptions of my model as the early reveal ones yeah, have you tried your hand at long-term forecasts? At, you know, I'm, I keep analogizing to zips and something like that. Has ten-year forecast, ten-year pagodas, right? Have you considered ten-year sardels? Where you? I have, I have not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd like to. I just, yeah, I'd like to stick with this. Uh, <laughs> I have friends who are like, "Why don't you gamble on sports?" I was like, "Well, that's that's a very different thing." Where, like you said, yes. I, mean, I don't have the half the data points for for a sports <laughs> game before the game starts. Yeah, you could you could project like first time candidates based on how similar they are to comparable candidates in the past, or you could project the trajectories of returning candidates uh, based on previous performance. Right? It could get much more complex if you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I still do. It's funny because, like, I, that part I could model it, and some of it is just what my gut assumption is. And and in the past, every time my gut assumption has been wrong. Well, not every time, but most of the times where I'm like, <laughs> oh, my model's way off on this guy. It turns out that I'm I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so I've learned to trust the numbers most of the time. But I did like I put in a. a I guess that Joe Mauer would actually get in the Hall of Fame. Ryan ran a, a poll last year. I think there were two people, and I was one of the only people who who thought he would. I think, I guess, I was hopelessly optimistic. Well, not hopelessly, yeah. um, right, rightly optimistic, but <laughs> that was just based on gut. And I think, I think maybe at that time, Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe had said he was going to vote for Joe Mauer. And once he did that, I was like, oh, he has a real chance because Dan. <laughs> I grew up in Boston reading Dan Shaughnessy. He's, he's notoriously crotchety. And, uh, uh, he uh, had submitted three Jeff Kent ballots, only only Jeff Kent's in a row. So I was like, okay, if this guy's supporting Maui, I did, wasn't sure how much support he would have, but that was a, a good sign yeah. for me. In the, and he said he's going to vote for CC Sabathia. So, uh, well, I was just about yeah. to ask about sort of this next crop of pitchers who are coming up. And I know that, you know, it's, it's maybe not a particular 
particularly good comp um, to, you know, put someone like Cece in conversation with some of the other uh, starters that we've had lately. But, you know, the electorate's going to have to figure out what it thinks the standard is for modern starting pitchers, because they obviously aren't throwing as many innings as guys used to. And so I wonder if there are any sort of trends in the the starter data lately that make you either confident or skeptical that some of these guys are going to get in, because it's not like we're not going to elect anyone from this era, but we're going to have to do it with at least inning totals that sort of pale in comparison to some of the ones that we've seen in prior generations. It's a great question. I think Felix is is a unique, he'll be a unique litmus test really for this because guys like Mark Burley, um, Andy Pettit, they're, they're certainly going nowhere. They're, they're right. stuck in the teens. Uh, Tim Hudson fell off. Um, yeah. For of the, of the three, he's probably the the one I rank the highest. Johan Santana might have been a good comparison to Felix, but he that was it was a totally different situation back then. The ballot was too crowded for him. He never really right. stood a chance. And yeah, it does um, feel like if if Santana or even Kenny Lofton, someone like that, came along now instead of then, things might have been very different. Yeah, Santana is one of my personal. I think if I would put three pitchers who were not in the Hall of Fame, it would be Johan, probably David Cohn, and then uh, who's uh, Dave Steed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. But I think Johan really, in like yeah, Kenny Lofton, Jim Edmonds, they just got really crushed by that that ba- that ballot crunch. So yeah. it's it's hard just to. T- we, I don't think we can project those cases forward and use them to to shine light on what's going to happen with these these other guys. But I mean, I'm hoping Felix at least gets some support. Uh, if not him, I mean, you got CC, you got the big four, and then who else? I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be Garrett Cole when he uh, retires. Or Yeah. Have conditions gotten more conducive to accurate results for you just based on how the ballot is overstuffed or not as overstuffed. Obviously, your technique has improved. You've learned each time that you've done this. And I suppose the percentage of ballots that are public has increased, which makes your job easier. But if the ballot is less stuffed with overqualified candidates, does that help you? Is it easier now because there's a little less of a backlog? Yeah, well, it's it's a very different model now too. From a because for for example, this year generally I create three categories of voters: large hall, medium hall, and small hall. And in the past, large hall has just been these guys are more likely to add, these these voters are more likely to add um, a player. Medium hall, you would think they're less likely, and small hall, least likely. This year, the the large hall voter block were the ones who basically had voted for. They had uh, eight or more holdovers from the previous year. So they were an interesting voter block to, to model because if you looked at their sort of ahead of my spreadsheet, red for drops and greens for ads, there's a lot of reds in that, that voter block um, just because they only had one or two open spots. And if they wanted to add Chase Utley, they had to drop someone they, they voted for the year before. If they wanted to flip on someone they, they missed last year, like add Billy Wagner, they had to drop someone. Um, and a lot of them, I think, Probably left off Chase Utley. Uh, he got left off, I think, uh, 26 full 10 player ballots this year. So he has a going into next year, that's going to be a different case where you, we have a lot of open ballot spots, uh, three right. inductees plus Sheffield dropping off. So no one is really going to be limited by who they want to add. And, and um, players like Pedroia or Felix, who might be on the, the bubble, 
have a real opportunity to to at least get some support there. And Chase Utley is really unique because of everyone else on the ballot, he and David Wright are the only ones who haven't been in one of these these situations where most voters could vote for anyone they wanted. The the year before that, when Roland got in, was a, a relatively weak ballot. Well, and I wonder too, I mean, like next year's ballot, we will have, I mean, you'll have Ichiro as sort of a no doubt first ballot guy. How big a difference does having a couple of those each each ballot make in terms of guys' ability to sort of stick around? Because I didn't, I didn't know if Maurer would be a first ballot guy. I thought that he might linger. And to your point, like it opens up a space next year. We just don't have to have a couple of years of him sitting around like 65% before he gets over the threshold. I think... Having Roland get in last year was was really key because it opened up that spot for yeah. people to add Joe Mauer. And I think a lot of people would have just potentially just left him off because they thought, oh, he'll be around for nine more years. I already have nine guys I want to vote for, and Adrian Beltre is the 10th spot. So I right. think that really helped him. And then getting three this year is going to help. I think the fact that Ichiro is joining the ballot amongst more of these these old school voters who, I mean, some voters are just like, they put a hard cap of three votes or four votes on their ballot, regardless of, of what else they think. They might be less inclined to add someone this year. But the year after that, Cole Hamels is the the top guy, uh, the top player by war on the ballot. And there's no one even, I don't think anyone would really consider a, a Hall of Famer um, beyond him, and that he's obviously, uh, he'd have to be pretty large haul. Um, uh, I think I think there's a case for him, but I think a, a lot of people are going to overlook him. Um, so I think that year and the year after that, uh, Buster Posey's the only one who comes on. So I think people will be looking for players to vote for. I think that helped Scott Rowland uh, last year. And I, you saw a lot of jumps uh, among players like Andrew Jones, Billy Wagner, Todd Helton, they all really benefited from that weak ballot in a lot of open open spaces. So I think in the next two years, you're gonna you, we could potentially see that with Carlos Beltran, for example. Andrew Jones, again, he he kind of plateaued this year. He after a, some some major gains for the the previous two years, he he only gained a few percent this year. So it'll be interesting to see if if he can he can flip a bunch of voters next year. Otherwise, he's he's at risk of topping out, and then he's going to have to rely on voter turnover really to get, to put him over the top. I suspect strongly that Sabathia will get in. I have very little doubt that he will eventually. And it wouldn't actually surprise me if he got in on the first ballot. I, yeah. I just think given all the focus on starter workloads these days, even the fact that he was pitching until fairly recently, he's remembered rightly as a durable guy with a lot of longevity and not just a innings eater or compiler, but someone who won a Cy Young, someone who has a Hall of Fame level war, someone who won a World Series. People remember what he did down the stretch in 2008. He's just well liked, I think, as a person and as a leader generally. So I strongly suspect that he will do better than some of the pitchers who've been in kind of a comparable range. That's my projection, I guess, for next year's <laughs> ballot. I, I mentioned that you know, you nailed the the top line results in that I think when people look at your projections, the number one thing they want to know is who's going to get in and who's not going to get in. And on that score, you were perfect this year. Of course, you missed somewhat on everyone to some degree, right? And even the guys who got in, 
you know, Beltre had 95%, you had him closer to 99%. Mauer, you had 82.6%, and of course, he barely squeaked over the line, 76.1%. Helton, you had pretty close to his results, right? You you had him at 77 He ended up at 79 close to 80 So what were your biggest misses, even though overall you did really well, and do they tend to come toward the top of the ballot or toward the bottom? I could see that going either way. I, I guess the more support someone has, in theory, the more percentage points you could miss by. But then on a percentage basis, you could obviously miss by more with some of the candidates with, say, single-digit support. You know, if you project 3% and they get 6% or something, that's that's a big difference in, in terms of percentage. So how does that tend to shake out and who were your biggest misses this year? Yeah, so obviously it's a lot harder to project the new people to the ballot. You mentioned Adam Doerr's flip rate model. I mean, it's that's a, an unadjusted flip rate model. My mine's sort of a, a a categorical flip rate model, but you can't use those for uh, first time candidates. Obviously, yeah. so you don't have that prior year to use as a as a prior going into the model. Um, so they're a lot harder to predict. In the past, I've been able to, so for example, when David Ortiz was on the ba- ballot, I could use a voter's attitudes towards A-Rod or um, Barry Bonds. Well, actually, he came on with A-Rod, I think. But I could use Barry Bonds as a proxy to further categorize voters uh, and, and how they evaluate PED usage. Uh, last year, I did something similar for Carlos Beltran. I used, did the voters vote for A-Rod? And did they not? And that seemed to work well. I missed Beltran a bit this year. And to be honest, it was a bit of laziness and a bit of just not having the the time. Um, I did it. I was worked on a PED version of the model just specifically for him, but I just (laughs) ran out of time to do it. And I just, a lot of times when I do start making more complicated models, it changes, it has minimal effect. And I knew he wasn't going to get in. Um, But I bet that, yeah, he's, there probably is. There might be a different attitude, in, for example, in the the second in the the second half of the voters, and in, in terms of how they're going to penalize him for the the sign stealing scandal. So I think as he gets closer to seventy five percent, it's going to be more important to include that as a uh, as a, a factor in the model. And the same with Gary Sheffield. I, I didn't model him as a PED. Uh, I didn't put PED um, perception in my model as well, and I missed him by a bit. Your question, Ben, about the the candidates who are really low rank uh, mm-hmm. ranking, so the ones on the bubble, and really the ones like Matt Holiday, the ones that get one or two percent, they actually do historically have done better in the private or post reveal ballots. I think uh, maybe because those voters have fewer players on their ballot, so they can mm-hmm. feel free to throw a token vote to a candidate. Maybe because they're uh, they're a bit more old school. Maybe because they're not on social media, because, so they don't care about people uh, criticizing them because they say voted for uh, James Shields or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I personally, I like those votes as long as you're not taking away a vote from someone you thought was deserving. I think it's neat to, to honor those guys. Yeah. So, but I mean, projecting those are a bit tricky. I tend to underestimate where they are. The ones on the, the high end of the ballot, it's, uh, it's, I tend to maybe overestimate, although I'd say it's much more the case with the first-time voters. So I'll be really interesting. The BBWAA 
we'll release a whole bunch of ballots in two weeks' time. Um, from the the voters have an option to check yes or no, and I think last year about all but sixty or so voters either released through the tracker or checked that box. Um, so that'll be really interesting to see. Joe Mauer obviously lost a huge amount of support. He had the biggest drop off of anyone that was a, close to um, the Hall of Fame election threshold that I think could track her history. But Halliday dropped off similarly, but he did much worse. And I'm really curious to see. I mean, Adrian Beltre only got 89, 89% support with the, the remaining voters after getting going 216 for 218 <laughs> in the yeah. early votes. So I, I'm, I'm really, really curious about that. And who it is, uh, whether or not there's, they tend to collect in the, the the voters who didn't check that yes reveal box, or the, whether we do see some of those in the, the the yes box. And if they are private voters, I mean, there's not that many voters that are in. We know who the voters are, and we could see like, are they? Uh, who are they? Are they? Uh, this, so there's a, a large block of voters who are members of Elias. Uh, the statistical people, um, and they almost never reveal their vote, their ballots. I mean, that's that's ten to twelve voters right there. And if they're voting as a block, well, that that violates the statistical assumptions of my model, and I might have to to incorporate that um, right. into the uncertainty projections that I mm-hmm. that I model, because if they're all talking to each other and they all decide, hey, let's not vote for Joe Mauer. I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, and they convince each other. Then a model that assumes everyone is independent, or at least mostly independent, it's not going to work in that case. Yeah, I guess it's also a case where you might have rooting interests that are at cross purposes, because if everyone released their ballot and we had the complete data, and if they did it especially early on and it was all in the tracker and we just had perfect information about everything, then I guess we would no longer need projections, really. <laughs> and so I I assume that you approve of transparency. And yet if we had total transparency, what would we need you for? Well, I, yeah, in my <laughs> mind, I really wish, and I know that BBWAA has been really good on this, is trying to push the hall for full transparency. And I don't, I like that, I think we've got the perfect mix now of about half the voters reveal beforehand, and it makes things interesting, but it leaves enough uncertainty to mm-hmm. to leave us on the edge of our seat come election day. Because I'm, I'm probably as nervous as anyone else bar the candidates, <laughs> um, because I have an emotional stake in, in, in what yeah. the outcomes are. They should send a camera crew to your house to film <laughs> <Yeah>. your live <laughs> reaction. Like, Phew. Um, <laughs> But if I knew who those private voters were and how they voted, there are, there's a lot more advanced statistical uh, techniques that I could do. I could do like PCA sort of regression and really try to cluster cluster these voters into better categories than just simply large, medium, small hall. And I can kind of extrapolate that based on we know how many people had 10 vote ballots from the previous year. We know how many ballots, how many votes were remaining. Um, so I can I can guesstimate what that breakdown is there, but I don't know what the how many of those voters flip. Um, like there might be voters who never. Well, we know there are voters who have, are on record as saying they almost never flip, um, unless a truly exceptional circumstances. And then there are ones who 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 are more prone to flip. And I'd like to include that in my model, but. Without having that information for those private voters, and they're they're pretty key, um, especially come reveal time. It's it's just it's impossible to model them. And I think it's just, I mean, as someone who loves data, I think it would be really nice, fun to dig into the the full 
data of, of all the, the ballots. You know, I know that this year with Wagner so close, he he had said publicly that like he wasn't going to have anyone over because he didn't know and wasn't confident that he was going to get the call, which obviously he didn't end up getting. I, I'm curious if you've heard any feedback from candidates or people with the hall about sort of how they use this information to manage their own expectations, because I know it's exciting for all of us. And I think having some suspense around it is good, but it has to be so painful for these guys who are close, you know, to to not quite know and to have to brace for that day and decide whether they have a barbecue or not, you know? <laughs> yeah, I saw that story by that interview with Billy Wagner. I mean, it's, yeah. And he's just the what the scenario he described. I mean, I think he said he was going to just be on the ball field doing yeah. practice. He's a college coach, I think. Yeah, I haven't heard from any candidates directly. I know some of them have followed the tracker in the past, or if they don't follow the tracker, their families are following the tracker, and their friends yeah. are following the tracker, and constantly. Um, and uh, I think that interview Billy Wagner, he was certainly familiar with the numbers in the tracker. Yeah, I mean, my nightmare is. Joe Maurer came really close to to not yeah. getting in this year. And if I, yeah. I mean, I said, I, I told people, I was like, if he doesn't get in, I just have to delete my account because I just, I would feel so awful. I mean, yeah. I was giving him 90, over 99% probability. And I guess the worst case scenario happened and he's, well, not the worst case, but I mean, a really, really, really stark difference between the private voters. And he did have enough of a buffer to, to make it, but I mean, yeah. To, if if he was so confident because of my tracker, my uh, projections, and then he didn't get the call, and everyone was sitting around, yeah, that, I would I would not feel good about that uh, mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, I've seen some people say that Maurer's election bodes well for some of the other catchers who were coming onto the ballot. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know that. Yadi, for instance, needs help. I think he will probably sail in. And I think Maurer's case is unique, just the kind of offensive force he was as a catcher. So I don't know if that makes things more likely for Russell Martin and Brian McCann, guys who would have framing-based war cases to get in. I don't know that Maurer really has any bearing on, you know, he was seen as as much more of a star during his day than they were, right? So whatever war says, I, I don't really think it's transferable personally. I'm not totally sold on those guys, as, those two as, as Hall of Famers, um, but I would love to see them at least get 5% next year and stay on the ballot yeah. mm-hmm. um, until at least until we better under- get some some perspective about the, their framing metrics are, are amazing. Um, I don't think that'll be the case, but we'll see. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly, you, there's a lot of space on the ballot, but I don't, I think it's, in terms of first time candidates, it's actually pretty strong ballot next year. You've got Ichiro, you've got CC, and I agree with, with you two that I think he'll, He'll get in or at least get very close. Dustin Pedroia has a good case. Felix Hernandez has a good case. I doubt they will get elected as a first ballot famer, I think, but they'll probably get maybe in the 20%, maybe more. Who knows? Um, I I think they'll at least get 5%. And that doesn't leave leave enough much room for the two catchers. And then, I mean, Joe Maurer was a unique case. He, He has the war metrics and he had a short career. But he did have the three batting titles, and he did have the MVP award, and, and 
traditional voters value things like that. So mm-hmm. maybe it does help Buster Posey, possibly, although yeah. he has yeah. his own separate case too, right? Certainly championship-based case. Each of those guys has something different going for them that I think will be enough to get them in. So I don't even know if they need kind of a piggyback effect to get in on the shoulders of Maurer, but can't hurt, I suppose. Yeah. And I think there's new voters coming onto the into the voter pool all the time and um, presumably younger, many of them, and they, they, they grew up with the advanced stats. Uh, uh, so I think the playing field will become more favorable to people who are who are stats friendly um, candidates. Yeah. Although and, some of them chicken out like Ben and don't cast their ballots. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. actually, yeah. I mean I, I don't don't begrudge Ben. I mean it's, it's easy to have a, a hypothetical ballot, but then when you actually have to vote and you have to consider things like off the field issues, it just becomes a, a nightmare, I think. If I had voted, I don't think I would have voted for Billy Wagner, so don't be yeah. mad wow. at me. <laughs> Sorry, Billy. I'm just not really a reliever in the hall guy. Well, but yeah, I mean, it does hurt someone like Billy Wagner. I mean, it's uh, it's an argument that a reliever is not as good as someone like uh, Mark Burley. I mean, I, w- I would have voted for Billy Wagner, but I respect the opinions of someone who does that. So it it can, it can be a, a double edged sword depending on the candidate or someone like Jill- Jimmy Rollins. If you look at his his advanced stats, they're they're maybe not super great. At the same time. <laughs> Mentioning that there's there hasn't been a, a middle infielder elected that has played since 2007 other than Derek Jeter, so I mean who who else are we going to put in for shortstop until the current crop retires? Mm-hmm. I mean, Tulowitzki he had a great peak, but he he probably didn't have a long enough career. So uh, I I haven't had Jimmy Rollins on my hypothetical ballot, but I mean I've, I've, I'm open to considering him on a. Even if the the stats, the pure advanced stats case for him isn't super great. Yeah, we've seen enough guys make moves after a few years on the ballot, despite having a fairly low starting point that it's hard to write anyone off. You know, like Bobby Abreu, for instance, he's at like 15% after five turns on the ballot. I don't foresee him making some massive move, but we've seen people like that. Suddenly they become kind of the it candidate, the cause celebra for the sabermetric crowd, and then they can climb up the leaderboard quickly, right? We saw saw that with Larry Walker, for instance. We've seen that with other guys in the past. I know Joe Pesnanski proposed having sort of a sliding scale when it comes to eligibility. So maybe you have the 5% minimum your first time on the ballot, but maybe that doubles, it goes up to 10% your second time on. He was sort of proposing that concept and saying we could tweak the particulars. And I might be amenable to something like that. But as he said, there are enough examples now of people who've made major (laughs) steep ascents that you wouldn't want to preclude that possibility for anyone whose candidacy might catch on late. I love the idea of you being like ready to tweak the rules and then still be like, but I'm not going to vote though. (laughs) Yeah, I'll just offer my input from afar from the sidelines. I do think a lot of those big gains uh, might have been a holdover from the ballot crunch. Yes. The really full ballots and bonds and and Clemens being stuck on the ballot. Like uh, people like Larry Walker, Scott Rowland, I said, like my hypothetical ballot, it's like I just didn't have room to vote for them. Um, And I think a lot of when I was able to put them on my hypothetical ballot, that's when they made their big jump. So it's clearly a lot of other voters were thinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then once they get that momentum, that causes the 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 small hall voters to take give them more consideration and take a look at their case. And I don't know if 
anyone. Uh, Chase Utley, I cited, I think because he may very well have been left off many ballots by voters who would vote for him. Um, so I think he could make a jump next year. Yeah. Um, not up to into the 60s or anything, but an, enough to then start to get some momentum going. And as people, I mean, he's one of my favorite players of all time. So I'm, he, I'm very invested in, in his, his uh, candidacy, but I think it's going to take him a while. Yeah. Um, but even like, I mean, he's got nine more years and there are a good number of voters who, who don't vote for him this year, who, who won't be voting 10 years from now, right. nine years from now, they've retired, they've uh, lost their badge. And then some people just stop voting once they retire, um, mm-hmm. even though they're eligible. Yeah. So it's going to be very different for him even five years from now than it might be today. Have you thought about naming your projection system? Because every projection system has got to have some sort of acronym or backronym or convoluted, tortured, (laughs) you know, named after Cooperstown and each letter stands for something, right? Have you thought of something like that? I have not done that. No, I actually haven't. Um, No, (laughs) just because it was, yeah, maybe. Good branding opportunity for next year, potentially. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> then people will think, oh, this guy, look at the ego on him. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, maybe lastly, sort of an unrelated question. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because you have one of the most eclectic Twitter bios I think I've ever seen. First of all, you're located in the UK. You said you grew up in Boston, right? But you're currently in the UK. And then your bio says, person of many hats, human geneticist, evolutionary biologist, ornithologist, economist, and yet... You say, I mostly use this account to tweet about the Baseball Hall of Fame, which seems like a, a lost opportunity. I'd almost, I wish we'd squandered this interview. We could have <laughs> talked to you about birds and, and human evolution and the economy. And instead, we've been talking about Hall of Fame results. So yeah. how did someone with this background, I mean, first of all, how does someone have all of those different backgrounds at the same time? And you're in the rich tradition of people who seem way overqualified to be doing baseball analysis. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that so many over the years have chosen to dabble in baseball. It's enriched our experience of the sport for everyone. But what a skill set you seem to possess. Yeah, I mean, it's all just different types of math, basically, in the end. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Other than the looking at birds thing, that's just a hobby um, that turned into a PhD, basically. Well, Darwin um, did that a lot, and, and he was a biologist, evolutionary biologist, yeah. the OG, I guess. So You know how you comp yourself to Darwin all the yeah, time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so it's, 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 I mean, like I said, I developed the tracker. I didn't, I wasn't intending to give it to anyone. I did it for myself, mm-hmm. and then decided to release it and now feel a bit obligated to it. But yeah, my social media is just basically Hall of Fame stuff because, I mean, I don't need to tell you too that social media is pretty toxic. So I try not to stay on use. And especially now, I try not to use Twitter for anything. And I never, I didn't intend to uh, to ever reveal who I was. I mostly just joined Twitter to follow people. Well, what What's your day job then? How do you uh, apply all of those things? What do you study when you're not forecasting Cooperstown results? Yeah. So now, right now I'm working for a, a small uh, tech bio um, company that's look at studying human disease and, and what, uh, what genes are, what's the genetic cause of human disease. And I'm building some models of disease and how to predict based on your genetic makeup, which diseases you're most susceptible to, which is one thing I don't, you don't necessarily want to know if you're going to have Alzheimer's disease, but it's more useful in context to then tie that into treatments and try to find drug therapies or other type of therapies that could benefit patients who have these, these 
particular genetic makeups. Um, and we call it precision medicine. The idea is that this is the the next stage of of medicine. Not uh, a blend, a one one solution doesn't fit every person, and we have to sort of like Hall of Fame models. Every year is different. Every patient is different, and we have to choose the the option that works best for you and 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 is most likely to to result in in a good outcome. Wow. Well, I really value the baseball forecasting work you do, but please tell me that projecting Hall of Fame results is not standing in the way of your solving all human disease because I don't know that that would be a worthwhile trade-off for me personally. Well, that's that's what you can blame for uh, Gary my Gary Sheffield projection being a bit off. <laughs> okay, if that's the excuse, then I will gladly accept that. It seems slightly more important. I mean, this is this is entertaining. Don't get me wrong, but you know, if uh, hopefully this is just your your spare time, you know, while you're waiting for your more <laughs> more important to humanity models to run, then you know, maybe tweak the the Cooperstown stuff on the side. <laughs> I, I assume that you're in the UK for, for work then? Do you bring up the fact that you have this sideline and, and some celebrity is a Hall of Fame projection person? Does anyone you know there understand what that means or care? Yeah. So I, I well, I moved to the UK. My wife is English. So we moved a few years. We were uh-huh. at least in the US when I started model uh, doing tracking. It was actually during my PhD when I first started it. And then we moved back here in 2020 very end of 2020s beginning of mm-hmm. 2021 so uh she wanted to be closer to family so i moved back here got got this job i was very happy to move out of academia frankly yeah i talked i've done a presentation we sometimes do at work uh friday presentations people will talk about things they do and i presented that and people were were quite amused but no one really understands baseball other than i have one colleague who is english and lives in boston and he's 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 my my person i can talk about baseball at work with. He's a big Red Sox fan, so we have that in common. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess whichever crowd you're in, if you're with the baseball crowd, they might not understand every aspect of what you do f- for your day job and vice versa, maybe. But each uh, each crowd, you certainly have something to offer. So I'm glad you do this. Thank you so much for coming on and explaining it. And uh, congrats on establishing yourself as the, the industry standard, the go-to source for Hall of Fame results projections and maybe we can talk to you again sometime when another ballot rolls around or if and when you cure all human disease that would probably be something that we would want to talk to you about too (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay no pressure Okay. very special off season episode yes We knew him when, when he was just famous for doing Hall of Fame projections. Now he's, uh, I don't know, the Jonas Salk of, of the 21st century. But yeah, thank you very much, Jason. We appreciate it. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. That will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. And thanks to those of you who support the podcast on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Ron Vaughn, Josh Bensinger, 
Evan Allen, Abby Noble, and all the bees. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, prioritized email answers, shoutouts at the end of episodes, potential podcast appearances, discounts on merch and ad-free fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Check out all the offerings at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can still contact us via email, send your questions and comments to podcast at fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode before the end of the week, which means we will talk to you soon. Effectively Wild, it's the zombie runner, Bobby Shane's Bobby Shane's Bobby Shane's. Manessis, no. Walk off three run digger. Stop it. <laughs> Walk off three run shot. Oh my god. Meg, he's the best player in baseball. Effectively, wow.